This episode of Hitting Play is brought to you by Missing Label Supermarket Cans. Mmm, I hope it's not dog food. Best way to start your day is by play. Hello and welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott. And joining me on the Hitting Play Hotline is a first-time guest, Steve. Steve, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Uh, first-time uh, caller, long-time listener. <laughs> Get to your point, caller. <laughs> you can edit out anything that doesn't sound good. You can you can edit me down and replace me with the uh, teacher from the Peanuts. That. <laughs> well, I'm keeping that in now. Well, this week, Steve and I watched one of the best comedic series of all time, Arrested Development. And uh, this is a show I knew I had a review with you, Steve. I think we've both watched the series multiple times at this point. (laughs) Several times, definitely. Just such a great show. So quotable. It's just, it's great. It's so great. Uh, the, the whole show has so many layers to it. Um, apparently, a lot of it has to do with the fact that they, the way it was written with just teams of writers that would all just be calling out their ideas in the meetings to, to go over the scripts so that it had a lot of uh, different layers that were coming in from uh, contribution from all different uh, people. There's just so much in there. Like You can watch it over and over again, and every time you're going to get something new out of it. It's just so amazing. Yeah, in fact, uh, I saw an interview with uh, with Tony Hale, who was talking about that same thing that about all of the details, uh, all of the callbacks uh, in it. That a lot of them, the the actors themselves didn't uh, notice. He he made the uh, point about losing his hand in the uh, second season, yeah, and how he goes online and people point out all the time that well, you know, in such and such an episode, uh, your father had a uh, pin on his lapel, in the shape of a hand. And, you know, the, did you know about it, you know, back then? And he said, no, the first I heard of it was the second season. But now with people prompting me, he said, I go back and I watch episodes and I find things that I had never noticed before. Yeah, it's just, there's so much. And then uh, we, we've seen this before, but there's a great article. In fact, they made a sequel to it on, uh, I believe it's splitsider.com. Yes. And it's like 52 things you may have missed. And then they followed it up with like another 53 or something. And it's just so comprehensive with all of the details, and there, there's YouTube clips to go along with a lot of them. Uh, just things about, like, Tobias being African-American, and you're like, no, there's there's no way that could be true. And then when you go back and look, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, I guess he really is, and there's so much evidence to back up just even something like that. The, the, whole, the whole show is just so many different threads um, weaving in and out, you know, from the background to the foreground, and unrelated-seeming things just getting tied together uh, and, and all sorts of surprises later on. It's, as I say, it's got to be one of the most uh, layered shows uh, that, that I've seen. Definitely. Now, it made its debut on Fox on November 2nd, 2003, to tremendous critical acclaim. Uh, in its first season alone, it received seven Emmy nominations and won five. It won for Outstanding Comedy Series, Outstanding Directing for a Comedy Series, Outstanding Casting for a Comedy Series, I didn't even know that was an award, Outstanding Single Camera Picture Editing for a Comedy Series, and Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Series. 
and that you know they submit one episode for review by you know the Emmy Awards, and they submitted the pilot, and that was written by the show's creator Mitchell Hurwitz and directed by Anthony and Joe Russo, who have now gone on past sitcoms. They they directed Captain America: The Winter Soldier, which I've talked about on the show is probably one of the best Marvel movies ever created. In fact, I think they're also doing the third Captain America movie coming up. And uh, also, Jeffrey Tambor was nominated that year for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series. Actually, Jeffrey uh, Tambor was uh, was only a late addition to the cast. Uh, at the last minute, uh, in fact, the day before the pilot was uh, due to shoot, he was asked by Hurwitz if he would be available the next afternoon to appear. And it was supposed to be uh, just a bit role with the father being just in jail after the uh, pilot. But he did so well on it that uh, the executives at Fox told Hurwitz that, well, if you can get Tambor to, to sign on as a member of the cast long term, that would go a long way towards us uh, picking up the show. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was just a very last minute. It was as a, it was a, as a personal uh, favor uh, that he uh, showed up. That's amazing. Yeah. And he's such a big part of that show. And then, of course... You know, with his twin brother Oscar, not to spoil anything for anybody that hasn't seen it yet, but, you know, he'll play uh, even a more expanded role in uh, in later episodes of the series. That's just amazing that it was that close to not even happening the way that we know it. Yeah, initially, uh, Herwitz's intention, I guess, was to, uh, was to leverage um, Ron Howard to try and pull in a, a big name uh, to, to play the role, again, for just one episode. But he kept putting it off and putting it off, and then finally decided to, uh, to ask Tambor to take the role, and, you know, the good thing that he did, because the rest is history. Yeah, and Fox executives, in that rare case, making a, a good decision. Yes, <laughs> they got it out of their system. <laughs> yes, because unfortunately, uh, the series did not get the ratings it really deserved, and was canceled after three seasons, despite all of those Emmy wins and, and tremendous critical acclaim, like I was saying before. But uh, to the delight of many fans, seven years later in 2013, it was revived by Netflix for a fourth season. And now, as we stand, future seasons and, you know, possibly a movie, there's rumors about that. It's all kind of still up in the air at this point. Not really thought of as a, a dead series just yet. Not dead yet. For this episode, we watched the, the great episode entitled Peer Pressure. This aired January 11th, 2004. It was directed by Joe Russo and was written by Mitchell Hurwitz. In fact, this is reported to be uh, Mitchell Hurwitz's favorite episode of the entire series. Oh, really? Yeah, I can see why. This episode has a, a rating on IMDb of 9.2 out of 10 by fans. Just a beloved episode. Except for the last point eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the fifth out of five dentists. Yeah, exactly. So, getting into this episode, of course, every episode starts with that intro by Ron Howard, who uh, also serves as the executive producer of the show. And we open on the Bluth family's model home, where Michael, played by Jason Bateman, Lindsay, played by Portia de Rossi, and George Michael, played by Michael Sarah, are in the kitchen. And we see that George Michael is talking to his father about his latest test and how he got an A-, and Michael tells him that he's very proud. Minus. And uh, maybe walks into the kitchen, boasts that she got a C minus, and, and she's, I love how she spells it M I N E S. And uh, Lindsay's very proud, I guess, of this, and uh, even more proud finding out that maybe didn't even study beforehand. 
And Lindsay puts the, the test on the fridge, and I didn't notice it any of the times I've watched the show, but she puts it on the fridge, and it's right next to George Michael's note saying that they were out of milk. Yeah, so the first of three notes uh, appearing this episode <laughs> <laughs> for important reasons. Uh, apparently, it's a lesson that's, uh, that's carried on through the family, <laughs> the family tradition. Yes. <laughs> Now, after Michael remarks that the, the bar has been lowered, Lindsay tells him that grades are meaningless and that Maybe's last school in Massachusetts didn't even have them. And uh, we get one of these great cutaways that they do in the show to uh, a look at Maybe's report card from the progressive Boston Sunshine Academy. And uh, I love this. We see that instead of letter grades, they stamp symbols onto the card. These are her grades from uh, Mrs. Rankle's class in the fall quarter. I had to write these down. We see that math makes maybe feel partly sunny. <laughs> Science makes maybe feel Elvis Presley. English makes maybe feel Jack in the Box. And then uh, there's also like a C- in there. But I just thought that was hilarious. And you know, when I was in elementary school, we never had letter grades. Like, not until, I think, middle school. I don't know if it's uh, just kind of a Massachusetts thing, but uh, we always had outstanding and satisfactory. Uh, I, I never saw things like that. <laughs> My, my grades were usually accompanied by, please call the school. <laughs> I thought that was an actual letter grade. <laughs> now, uh, Michael warns Lindsay here that without discipline, a kid like Maybe could end up getting into some pretty tough stuff. And sometimes that could even mean turning to drugs. And of course, that's a, a little foreshadowing here. And Lindsay, in turn, warns Michael that putting stress on a kid can be just as dangerous, like what he does to George Michael even when he gets an A. And uh, Michael's very quick to correct her by saying minus. Minus. Yeah. <laughs> and he adds that, uh, and he knows that an A gets him ice cream. And Lindsay replies by telling him that he's as bad as their father with his ridiculous lessons. And here we cut to uh, our first flashback. This is 1981. We see George Sr., played uh, by the great uh, Jeffrey Tambor. He's opening the fridge and finds that the milk container had been put back in the fridge empty. And we see him making a phone call. And uh, in voiceover, we're told that George Sr. used his considerable means to stage intricate scenarios to teach his children what he considered valuable life lessons, and that typically these involved a man named J. Walter Weatherman. Now, Steve, how would you describe a, a man like J. Walter Weatherman? Uh, J. J. Walter Rothman was useful. <laughs> I don't know how to describe J. Walter, but I think J. Walter Rothman needs to be experienced. Yes, that's true. <laughs> we see him here. He's on the phone. He's, uh, he's at the ready. He says, I'll get my gear. And we learn his backstory. I guess he was a, a one-time Bluth Company employee, and he lost his arm in an industrial accident. And uh, just uh, extremely loyal. You think uh, he'd be kind of bitter with what joining the Bluth Company did to him. But he puts on his prosthetic arm. And I didn't even notice this the first couple of times I've seen this episode. But he actually has a three-legged dog. Yes, which he actually pets with the prosthetic as he passes <laughs> by on his way out on his, to, to undertake his, uh, his mission. <laughs> so, later now we see George Sr. driving the family car. And all four Bluth children are in the back seat. And uh, Job is making poor little Buster smack his own face. And uh, while this is happening, George is turning to face the back seat, rambling on and on about how they were out of milk and how he could have gotten it earlier if someone would have just left a note. And just as George turns around, he sees this man crossing the road, but of course is unable to stop in time. 
and the children scream as the family car hits him. The man bounces off the windshield, leaving only his arm. And I think there's a lot of fake blood involved as well. (laughs) (laughs) There is some stage blood involved. (laughs) So, I mean, uh, you know, he really got into staging these scenarios for for George and the family. They were very elaborate. Yeah, I mean, almost like to the point of having a stuntman on hand. (laughs) So, as these kids are just screaming... Like crazy, George explains that if only someone had left a note, this innocent man would still have his arm. And uh, Weatherman limps to the back window and stares at the kids (laughs) and says, And that's why you always leave a note. (laughs) Which appropriately, the the first note that we encounter uh, in this episode was uh, from George Michael, posted on the uh, refrigerator door, finished milk, will buy more. Yes. <laughs> so apparently the, the, the trauma was actually, uh, was actually genetic. Yes. It was so deep. <laughs> so funny. Now cutting back to Michael and Lindsay, Michael defends his father saying that the lessons worked. That's why they leave notes to this day. Now at this point, Job walks into the kitchen, played by Will Arnett, and he immediately asks for a favor. He owes the police-themed stripping agency that he used to work for, called Hot Cops, 500 bucks. And uh, he also notes that he may have been a little too convincing. And uh, we cut to a flashback of of Job. He's in full police uniform, and he's carrying a boombox as he's walking through. I don't know, is this some sort of, like, seedy hotel or is it an apartment complex? It it looks like a seedy hotel, perhaps with with long-term residents. Yeah, yeah. So Job goes up to uh, one of the doors, knocks, and of course, (laughs) how does a hot cop enter a hotel room? Police, open up! Fortunately for Job, he he crouches to attend to his boombox, and uh, someone inside fires a shotgun, blowing a huge hole in the door. (laughs) And one of the best uh, sight gags in the entire show, in my opinion. Oh, yes. Now, this isn't the only appearance of uh, Hot Cops in the series in this episode. Later on, Hot Cops is used first as extras to uh, for Job's bachelor party. Uh, <laughs> they're later hired as tops to scare Tobias into selling his shares of the Queen Mary nightclub. <laughs> and, and in the final episode of the uh, Fox series, Development Arrested, they actually are, once again, hired to play sailors, ironically, on the real Queen Mary. <laughs> oh, man. Speaking of Tobias, this is one of the few episodes that Tobias doesn't appear. I know, that's unfortunate, because he's such a great character. David Cross plays him so hilariously, and it's just uh, a shame that uh, we didn't get him in this one, but uh, this episode is so funny nonetheless. Well, you didn't, but I just did. <laughs> And I love here, when the shotgun is fired through the door, Job just kind of, like, stays down. He's, like, stunned for a second. And then he nervously kind of, like, crouch walks backwards. <laughs> it's kind of a slow, nervous scuttle. <laughs> such such great uh, physical acting there. <laughs> yeah. Now, cutting back to the Bluth kitchen again, Job explains that he owes the money because he never delivered on the gig, which, uh, you know... Completely understandable. Michael reluctantly agrees to give him the cash, but in return, he gets to ask him for a favor. And uh, Job agrees. So Michael then leaves for his mother Lucille's apartment, where she too needs a favor from Michael. 
Uh, I guess the SEC is making her inventory everything she owns to prove that she hasn't been making any new purchases with the company money. And uh, Michael asks, you know, we there haven't been, right? And uh, Lucille replies, well, not after we doctor all these receipts. <laughs> so Michael, of course, being kind of the moral center of the show, refuses, you know, to help his mother doctor these receipts. So Lucille decides to just move on to ask Lindsay instead. And uh, here we get the uh, first appearance of Buster in this episode, played by the great Tony Hale. He walks into the room and greets his brother. Michael asks if he's going to visit his girlfriend, and Buster tells him that he is because she's down again. But now, uh, Buster enters the uh, enters the room uh, with his traditional greeting of, Hey, brother. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which, which, which is interesting because the significance of that is that uh, when Tony Hale auditioned for the show, he was one of the uh, cast members that Mitchell Hurwitz didn't know beforehand. And uh, Hale actually recorded an audition tape uh, in New York and it sent it in. He'd previously done most of his work in commercials. Mm-hmm. And his audition tape was kind of odd. It was just footage of him giving a massage or a, or it appeared that he was giving a massage to someone off camera in the sort of... Uh, of awkward, almost robotic movements, uh, <laughs> typical of <laughs> typical of Buster. Herbert's was watching and didn't know what to make of it until uh, he ended it with "Hey, brother." At which point, Herbert said that at that point, I know I had my Buster. Oh, that's hilarious! <laughs> yes. So anytime, anytime you hear him saying "Hey, Buster," that's actually a callback to his audition tape. Wow, that's amazing. And it's so funny, yeah, the, even the uh, those awkward shoulder massages that Buster always likes to give. Yes. That's funny that it goes all the way back to those audition tapes, too. That was just kind of an acting choice he made that early on. Yes. And we'll see once he uh, loses his hand and has a hook, those uh, <laughs> those shoulder massages become a little more difficult. Oh, that's for, that's for working out the really deep knots. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now... We cut to some exposition here as our narrator explains that Buster's girlfriend, who is a longtime family acquaintance, Lucille Ostero, who is often referred in this show as Lucille II, because the mother of the Bluth family is also Lucille, but this is Lucille Ostero. She suffers from chronic vertigo, and I guess she's been trying to fight it without the use of medication. But as we, the viewer, sees, it's not going so well. She's stumbling around her apartment... Uh, trying to grab hold of some of, I guess, the nautically-themed decor of her apartment. So funny. And, and Liza Minnelli in this is just absolutely hilarious. I, I had never liked Liza Minnelli in, in anything <laughs> I had ever seen her in prior to Arrested Development, at which point seeing her playing uh, Lucille Astero made me a fan. That's one of the things that this show is uh, so good at, is taking actors and actresses that maybe... Uh, we haven't seen in a number of years or who were just uh, really uh, pigeonholed and just kind of brings them out and they, they kind of, uh, they, they have so much fun obviously hamming it up yeah. that, uh, that, and it just works. It, it completely remakes uh, some of these, uh, some of the actors and actresses that appear. Yeah. And then just the, the comedic talents of some of these people that you'd never expect, like Carl Weathers. <laughs> Carl Weathers was, was one of, and, and, Again, uh, Liza Minnelli, 
who knew that she would be so good and just playing very broad comedy. Yeah. But was completely unselfconscious about it and just ran with with it. Probably one of the most absurd roles in the whole show. Yeah, and a role that she played through all four seasons. Yes, yes, she did. I mean, the, now apparently their uh, contact with her and how they got her into the uh, show is that uh, she had known Ron Howard as a child when he did some work on a movie that her husband was shooting. And actually, at that time, she uh, she babysat the young Ron Howard. <laughs> and so they so there was kind of there were a lot of informal connections like that by which people were pulled in. I just like uh, Jeffrey Tambor was pulled in just because of his friendship with Mitchell Hurwitz from having worked on a previous show together. But there were a lot of people that were pulled in that way. Wow, that's that's hilarious. And uh yeah, we see this kind of a creepy connection as uh, she was also Buster's babysitter <laughs> when he was younger. <laughs> That's that's very disturbing. (laughs) There's a lot of disturbing aspects of that relationship. (laughs) So cutting back from this whole uh, vertigo sequence, we see Buster's clearly distressed. Michael tells him, you know, you're, you're free to go. You haven't really made a commitment to her. But Buster tells him that, you know, he kind of did because he refers to it as our nausea. And then uh, after commenting on their uh, intimacy, let's say, Michael remarks that now it's his nausea as well. <laughs> it's all of our nausea. <laughs> <laughs> now we cut to later in the day as Lucille stops by the model home to ask for Lindsay's help with this inventory project, and Lindsay also refuses. Maybe also walks over to join them in the dining room and asks if uh, Lindsay could sign off on her test, on which she got a D-. And uh, Lucille has been standing there. First, she was making fun of Lindsay's weight, then Maybe's intelligence. And that's when Lindsay decides that she's going to be firmer with her daughter. So she stands up to her, literally, and uh, refuses to sign her test. And in response, Maybe just says, fine, I I will. So she goes to sign it. And uh, she asks her mother, "Is, is Lindsay with an A or an E? So Lindsay tries again to, you know, take this firm stand with Maybe and declares that she is punished, saying, uh, you are now punished, I punish thee. And uh, after a moment of wondering now what the punishment should actually be, that there's, you know, there's actually a second part to this, uh, Lucille comes back in, into the room just to take a parting shot at Lindsay. Like, that's all it was, <laughs> all she came in the room for. And that's when uh, Lindsay decides that Maybe is going to spend the day working for her grandmother. That's going to be her punishment. Which is a brilliant punishment, as it turns out. But you know, speaking as a parent, one thing that I will point out is that when your punishment involves using the word "the," you're already starting off on a weak foot. So it was a very nice recovery. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Use of "the" or "thou" means you're generally losing. Uh, thou art correct. <laughs> yes, I art. <laughs> so we next cut to George Michael. And, uh, yeah, I just love this. He's frantically studying at this desk that's built onto his, uh, bunk bed in his room. And he's chastising himself for the wrong answers and calling himself things like, you know, you stupid jerk. And, uh, Michael walks by and witnesses this. And he really sees that George Michael is stressed out. His eyes are all red. And he feels like he just might be pushing him too hard. And Michael tells him to take the night off and tells him to close his book, which he does eventually. Well, 
It's a f- nice little acting here where he has his finger in the page and he just very, very slowly removes his finger from the page. So meanwhile, Buster, worried about Lucille too, sits on her bed while she lies nauseous on the floor. Great moment here where he's like, how's your nausea? And then she's just kind of moaning like, oh. He's like, oh, I mean, R. How's our nausea? <laughs> and again, this this is another example of of just the, the brilliance of the show that that in the frame you have Buster sitting on the bed, and then all you see are, are Lucille's feet sticking <laughs> out from behind the bed. <laughs> <laughs> just a great visual to go with the dialogue. Yes, well, sort of dialogue. It, it's a monologue with a moan. <laughs> a monologue. So, remembering that he once took part in a study on medical marijuana and its effect on nausea, Buster goes through some old boxes and he finds this binder detailing the test results. And uh, we cut back to uh, another flashback, this is great, Uh, footage of this test in which Buster was given a THC pill, then sent to a carnival for the day to induce his nausea, and as revealed by our narrator, that's what attracted Buster to the experiment in the first place. <laughs> just Buster, throughout this whole series, just so childlike. I mean, of course, the uh, epitome of arrested development. <laughs> He's man, child. <laughs> <laughs> he really is. Just, uh, again, such great acting by Tony Hale in this. And uh, Buster was found two days later after this experiment, trying to eat the giant plaster donut sign for Randy's Donuts, which is, you know, a famous California landmark. And it's also parodied in the opening sequence of The Simpsons. Yes, yes. The uh, the lard lad. <laughs> yes. Who even comes to life in a, uh, in a great Halloween episode. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we cut back to the present now where Buster is determined to get a remedy for Lucille 2's nausea. And he visits the most streetwise kid he knows. I love this directing choice here where the camera pans across as Buster's nervously walking by people on a crowded street. We see all kinds of young people, and you wonder who he's actually going to stop to ask, you know, to buy drugs. And he ends up walking past everybody on this crowded street and stops right at the famous Bluth Frozen Banana Stand where George Michael was working as a break from schoolwork. An interesting, another sort of fact, is that uh, as a 12-year-old, apparently Mitchell Hurwitz uh, started his own chocolate chip company uh, <laughs> called The Chip Yard, which he, uh, which he ended up running out of a former taco stand in Newport Beach, California. Huh. And apparently after uh, being featured on the local news, it turned into a real success. And he alleges it was uh, the income from the chocolate chip stand uh, that paid his way, his and his brother's way, through college. But that was the uh, that was the inspiration for Bluth's original frozen banana stand. Oh my goodness, that's that's amazing. Yes. So now Buster cuts right to the chase and asks George Michael if he can help him get some weed. And Buster quickly explains that, you know, it's not for him, it's for Lucille too, his girlfriend. And George Michael replies, she's your girlfriend? Dad said you were her nurse. <laughs> It can be a blurry line. (laughs) Uh, I just love the fact that the the Bluth siblings are just so embarrassed that, uh, you know, they just tell people a different story. (laughs) Shielding his son from the the truth here. (laughs) Now, Buster requests that he get it in pill form and that he could put it on a tea biscuit and tell Lucille, too, that it's a marshmallow. 
it, it, George Michael is stunned that, you know, his uncle would even ask him this question. And he asked him why he would even think that he would know how to get something like that. And Buster replies, you work here. This, this is pot central, right? And this here is an iconic moment in the series. We immediately cut to a scene of the boardwalk in the 70s where the narrator explains that the Bluth's original frozen banana stand was the place to buy marijuana in Newport Beach because of its resemblance to a large yellow marijuana cigarette. And it became so popular that it inspired a hit song called Big Yellow Joint by Jimmy Jane. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just the beautiful uh, montage here and the cutaway and we actually see the record spinning on the turntable. And great music in this series, too. They actually did record the song Big Yellow Joint. If you get the uh, the DVD box set, there's uh, a lot of special features. Which, you know, it's, it's so much better to have the box set than just Netflix. Because there's so many uh, deleted scenes and there's blooper reels. But then there's also a nice music feature where you can go through and listen to all the cuts and all the songs that were, you know, made for this series. And, and this is just a hilarious one. So they recorded the full song, not just the clip that appeared in the show. I'm not sure how long it is, but it's a it's a you know a decent length. It's very funny though. <laughs> I'll meet you down at the big yellow joint. <laughs> so we cut back to present day as George Michael tells Buster, you know, just to ask Job, and uh, Buster now having a uh, traumatic flashback to the "Why are you hitting yourself?" scene immediately refuses, saying that you know he wouldn't do it, and. That he, along with everybody else, makes fun of him for dating Lucille too. So Buster now devises this plan that George Michael will ask Job for the marijuana, but without telling him that it's for his uncle Buster. Just then, Michael now rides in on his bike and discovers George Michael working at the banana stand. And he just gives him $20. He tells him, listen, close up shop. Go ahead, make mistakes with your life and go crazy. And Buster agrees, uh, saying that George Michael should definitely make a mistake and adds an additional $225. <laughs> it's just it's just for the impulsivity that's, that's so much a part of Buster's character. Yeah, yeah. And so now we cut to a commercial break. And when we return, we see that Maybe is now working with her grandmother Lucille at her apartment at Balboa Towers. That's where the... Uh, the Bluth family apartment is. Lucille explains to Maybe the sordid details of why George, her grandfather, bought her certain items of jewelry. Maybe is actually having fun at this point, being with her grandmother. And the two of them have some things in common, especially talking bad about Lindsay. And Lucille even gives her a elephant-shaped brooch that Lindsay always wanted. But when Lucille pins the brooch to Maybe, she remarks, Oh, pretty, it'll distract from the freckles. And Maybe begins to get the, the first glimmerings of why spending time with her gangy might not be the best idea. Yes. <laughs> Maybe, uh, of course, played by Alia Shawkat, and just great acting here on her face. You can just see her expression, the smile turns to kind of a straight face. Yeah. Now, the, even the uh, character's name, though, Maybe, is a, a brilliant little touch to the show, as it kind of refers uh, to, to the certain ambiguity of, of her situation in the family and uh, her relationship with her cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of, yeah. Kind of. Uh, the, her, her was had a lot of fun with the with the names in the show. He thought it was really important to get the names right, so you only have one opportunity to get the name for a place or a character, and that can really be a significant part of the show. Mm -hmm. And so, with the uh, with the names of the, the family members, he actually, if 
you notice, they're all very, well, most of them are very closely related. I mean, you've got the father, George Oscar Bluth, mm-hmm. brother Oscar George, then you've got Job, which is George Oscar Bluth the second. <laughs> you've got Michael, and you've got George Michael. So they're all, and then, of course, you've got Buster, whose name is Byron, so he doesn't really fit this pattern, but <laughs> in so many, so many ways. Yeah. And Herbert said that the reason why he wanted this is that it did make it a little bit confusing, and it kind of forced people to pay closer attention to, to who was who in it. Oh. And uh, he claimed it was a, a Faulknerian trick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how much uh, to credit that. <laughs> I think it was just his own idea. And, and even like Lucille, which we'll see whether uh, that kind of came about as an afterthought or not, but we'll see that Lucille plays a part in uh, what happens to Buster's hand. The wordplay and the messing with the names and what the double meanings of these things can have is just uh, so wonderfully done. Real attention to detail. Now we cut to nighttime at the pier where George Michael is nervously walking towards the family yacht, which is Lucille. Yes, which would be Lucille 3. It's the third Lucille on, on this episode. Okay, <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> and we see that this is where Job has been staying. When uh, George Michael discovered that Job wasn't there, he does what our narrator describes as doing what he has been trained to do since childhood. Leaving a note. A note. (laughs) (laughs) Note number two of the episode. And the the camera zooms in on the note, and we see that it says, uh, Uncle Job, a friend needs pot. Can you get some? George Michael. Then uh, we cut back to the model home where Job shows Michael the note that he found left by his son. Job here in the scene is just one of the funniest things to me. It's, uh, he tells Michael that uh, George Michael left him $200. Uh, $100. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say 200 I meant 100 <laughs> Yeah, it even goes on. Like, I, don't, I don't know why I said that originally. I don't know why. <laughs> so uh, Job pulls out a bag of weed to give to Michael for his son and tells him that they're now even for the whole hot cops thing. And Michael starts thinking about George Michael's recent behavior, and, you know, it starts to add up to him. He has been stressed, his eyes have been red, his grades are dropping. I love Job's, like, uh, he chimes in, yeah, I heard about the A-. minus. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Michael's becoming very suspicious now, and he goes to George Michael's room to confront him about what happened, and George Michael is very nervous now as Michael's starting to grill him, and, and he's shaking out the pages of his school book, expecting to find some marijuana to fall out. George Michael tells his father that the money that was given to him to have fun was immediately put into his savings account. And uh, Michael knows he's being lied to, but, you know, thanks him for his honesty. Michael now goes back to Job on the patio to report back about George Michael's dishonesty. And he asks Job where the family's morality even is anymore. And Job is just sitting there with a straight face the whole time. Finally, Job coughs out the words, I don't know, with pot smoke billowing out of his mouth. <laughs> it's cold out here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of love in that family. Oh, yes. Lies. More lies, but <laughs> a lot of love. So Michael is just now completely at wit's end, and he tries to think of what he should do next. He asks Job if he should yell at him. And Job quickly stands and tells Michael that their father taught them not to yell when they were younger. And so now we cut back to another flashback. This is back in 1981, 
where on the family yacht, Job has Buster pinned down, and they, along with the rest of the kids, are just yelling. They're completely misbehaving on the back of this boat. We see uh, J. Walter Weatherman is trying to yell up to George Sr. over the commotion and uh, tells him, you know, let me know before you hit the gas. And George Sr., playing his part, yells down, I can't hear you because of the kids yelling. And they go back and forth a little bit. And then George Sr. says, I, I guess you're saying hit the gas. And he makes the boat leave the dock as, of course, Weatherman's arm is still holding onto the rope. And his arm comes off to the horror of all four Bluth children. That's more stage blood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, of course, the lesson being, that's why you don't yell. <laughs> you think the kids would get it at this point that uh, anything involving J. Walter Weatherman is going to end up being a lesson. Or anytime they see a severed arm and blood, it's always going to be uh, a lesson for them to learn. But, uh, no, they're, they're fooled every time and react in horror. Well, you have, to, you have to figure they're thrown off by the fact that when they're seeing him in the setup part, he's got two arms, so they don't recognize him. The, the part of his identity that's seared into their memory is, is the blood spurting out of the stump. <laughs> uh, and I love just like the such a deep childhood traumatic experience for these kids that all these years later, when Michael suggests maybe I should yell at him, Job immediately jumps up and tells Michael, no, no, we shouldn't yell. Remember that we learned that lesson. <laughs> like, still has an effect on them all these years later. So we cut back now onto the patio where Job and Michael are talking, and Michael's like, yeah, yeah, yelling's not a good way to go. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael now has a better idea, and we next cut to Michael visiting his father, George Sr., in prison, where he explains the situation and tells him that now he wants to teach George Michael a lesson. And uh, George offers his forgiveness. At this time, he's seen as some sort of spiritual guru. He uh, had this uh, spiritual epiphany and turned a piece of his sneaker into a uh, head covering of sorts. That's a sort of ersatz yarmulke. Yes. Very ersatz. But uh, Michael's not interested in his father's forgiveness. He wants J. Walter Weatherman. And George tells him that it wouldn't be possible because he was killed. He was killed when Michael left the door open with the air conditioner running. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's it, something about Tambor's delivery of that, just, just very, not quite offhand, because there, there, there's a certain stage sorrow. <laughs> and, oh, no, he's... Instead, you killed him when you left the door open with the air conditioning on. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael tells him that he does need Weatherman so he can stage this scenario down by the docks, and he wants to make it look like a drug deal went bad. And even though Michael said he hated his father's lessons, they still worked, and he wants this to work for George Michael. Now George refuses, first because he thinks it's a Jewish holiday, but then he has the wrong day. Because, you know, he's only converted for a couple of days at this point. But secondly, because he feels it's wrong. Now, back at Lucille's apartment, Lindsay goes to check up on Maybe and see how her day of punishment has been going. And Lindsay immediately spots uh, Maybe wearing the brooch that she has wanted since childhood, that little elephant brooch. And Lucille explains that the brooch is of an elephant and she just did not want to invite the comparison if she gave it to Lindsay. <laughs> 
apparently weight is is a big issue to uh, to the mother. But if Lindsay not being at, if anything closer to underweight. Yes, yes. Portia de Rossi's character of Lindsay is uh, not overweight by any stretch of the imagination, but Lucille still points out that, you know, her arms are flabby and all this stuff that doesn't really exist, just to give her this uh, complex. <laughs> Another great acting job by Jessica Walter in this series. She's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> just brilliantly malicious. Yes. Now, Lindsay tells her that she's ready to bring Maybe home and take her out for ice cream. But Lucille insists, no, the two are just having so much fun, so Lindsay decides to leave without her. And at this point, Maeve is really starting to question how much fun she's really having. And uh, she asks her grandmother if they can go out for ice cream too. But Lucille tells her that it may not be a good idea because her chubby wrist is testing the tensile strength of the bracelet she's wearing. (laughs) (laughs) Just really chipping away at at everybody's self-esteem. And not missing a chance. No, not at all. Never missing an opportunity. (laughs) We cut to a few moments later and we see that Lucille is calling for maybe, but she's gone. The camera zooms in on a note she left saying, thanks for the gift, love fatty. This is, of course, note number three on the episode. (laughs) Yes, and you know, just watching these episodes in the past never made the connection of the uh, the note writing. But yeah, it all ties in with the theme of the episode. into their genes. <laughs> and you think maybe Lucille would have a little compassion, you know, she just hurt this girl's feelings. No, she just looks at the note, just rolls her eyes and keeps walking. <laughs> so we next cut to Job squatting down on the front of the family yacht as he takes a call from Michael. Michael tells Job that George Sr. would not help him teach his son a lesson, so he needs the help of Job and his hot cop friends, and this will be Job's way of repaying the debt to Michael. Back at Balboa Towers, Buster discovers George Michael walking to the family apartment and confronts him. Now, I believe Lucille 2's apartment is across the hall from the Bluth apartment? Yes. Okay, so he kind of finds him in the hallway there before he enters his grandmother's apartment. We find out in a later episode that they do share a wall. Yeah, there's some construction issue, I believe, later on. Uh, A little bit. (laughs) That's for another episode. That's for another episode, though. (laughs) So, uh, Buster intercepts George Michael, drags him into the Bluth family apartment, and he's telling him that his old lady's on the floor, and he wants to know where the drugs are. And George Michael tells him that Job just called, and he has the stuff at the yacht. And George Michael does not want to retrieve it for him, because he suspects now that his dad is onto him. But Buster now makes this impassioned plea, telling him how his woman is sick, and he begs for his help. Which, ironically, kind of ties back to uh, the story that, uh, that... Michael told to George Michael, explaining the relationship between Job and Lucille, too, as he's her nurse. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) He needs medicine for the patient. Exactly. (laughs) So here, as uh, George Michael finds himself in this quandary, we cut to commercial break. Now, when we return from commercial, we see that later that night, Michael is riding his bike to the docks to make the final arrangements with Job. And Job assures Michael the hot cops will push the tension to the last possible moment before they begin stripping. Well, they are pros. <laughs> <laughs> he, he also explains that, uh, you know, drug deals go on all the time at the pier, and boats wait offshore, and lights are flashed, a guy comes over and drops off a bag. So Michael decides to hide as Buster and George Michael arrive at the pier and approach the boat. 
Buster walks a certain distance with him, thanks him once again, and then just pushes him forward and runs away. So now it's just George Michael alone. He approaches the family boat. He calls for Job, who asks if he's been followed in a a very dramatic way. And uh, Job begins to flip a switch, and he's explaining to George Michael here that he's flashing the lights so that the drug dealer knows what's going down. After telling George Michael that they now must wait possibly as long as five hours, two men decked out in, like, I don't know, 90s attire and holding a boombox approach the pier, loudly shouting, Drug delivery! <laughs> and asking for the money. <laughs> and, and incidentally, this is a five, a possibly five-hour wait. <laughs> it's going to involve boats offshore. <laughs> Yeah, they're going to see these flashing lights and it's going to take them five hours to get there? Oh, it is against the law. So Job now jumps down and begins to play along, you know, asking for the stuff. And one of the men pulls up his shirt to mainly show off his stomach, but as well as uh, reveal the bag that's in his waistband. (laughs) Job kind of tells him, okay, you can put your shirt down, Derek. (laughs) And we see this guy, Derek, and George Michael now make the exchange. Then Job and Derek loudly declare that a deal has been made. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, now all of a sudden, men in the distance shout, He's ruining his life! And they run to the boat as dance music begins to play. And uh, we see that most of these men are dressed as police officers, some in short shorts, but one in particular is dressed as a construction worker. A construction worker. (laughs) (laughs) I guess there's only so many hot cops uniforms out there. (laughs) Now, just before these uh, hot cops are about to start stripping, Michael comes out of hiding on the boat and uh, tells George Michael that he hopes he learned his lesson. Now the hot cops begin cheering and celebrating, (laughs) congratulating each other on a job well done. As only hot cops can. Yes. (laughs) By dancing wildly. And George Michael denies that, you know, he was buying the drugs for himself, but when Michael asks him to give a name of who he was actually buying marijuana for, George Michael hesitates to answer. And uh, finally, Michael tells him that it was for himself, and he was going to smoke the marijuana like a cigarette. His street cred is is impeccable. (laughs) Michael begins to tell George Michael that he's facing a very big punishment, but that's when Buster runs over and admits that George Michael was just buying it for him so that he can give the drugs to Lucille, too, because she's sick. Which is actually, for Buster, actually kind of a heroic move. For yeah. The character because the really central value that Buster is built around is the desire for safety. Yes. And being afraid of things. So for Buster to come forward is actually a pretty significant break from his typical behavior. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he does have a good heart, as you see. I mean, taking care of Lucille in the way that he does. But cowardice is very much a part of his character. (laughs) Now, right here after Buster explains that Lucille, too, is sick, Job insensitively says, why don't you just wait it out? She's going to be gone soon. (laughs) And now Buster just... (laughs) Which is actually a lie that never really caught my attention at all. Well, you just said <laughs> yes, yes, she'll be gone soon. Terrible. And this is like Buster's breaking point now. And it just, in a rage, he turns the tables on Job all these years later, and he makes Job hit himself. Now confused, 
Michael asks George Michael why he did this in the first place, and George Michael explains that he's always been told to do the right thing and to put family first. So Michael sends Buster and George Michael home, then turns around to see some guys dropping packages into the family boat. And one of the men explains that he got the signal and they flashed their lights. And they start to demand money for these packages that they're just dropping into the boat. And Job and Michael, they try to call the deal off, explaining, no, no, we're just trying to teach our, our young man here a lesson and they don't want any trouble. And all of a sudden at this point, a police boat pulls into the harbor with sirens and spotlights and police officers aiming their weapons. The drug dealers are screaming that they've been set up. Job and Michael now have their hands in the air. They're trying to explain the situation, but one of the drug dealers begins to open fire. Everybody runs for safety. The drug dealers and the police begin to fire at one another, and Michael hits the deck. So it's like this crazy shootout going on. Probably the most action we've seen in Arrested Development, up to this point, anyway. And one man begins to shout about his arm, and we see a severed arm land right in front of Michael's face. Then uh, Michael kind of comes to the slow realization about what just happened. He gets up and he sees J. Walter Weatherman standing there in front of him, and he says, And that's why you don't teach lessons to your son. <laughs> so as Michael later confronts uh, George Bluth, you taught me a lesson not to teach lessons. George, yeah, and George tells him it was my last lesson. <laughs> and, and George Sr. now, he's explaining to Michael, you know, he's a good kid and you should just try to talk to him when he thinks he might be in trouble. And, uh, you know, Michael does take this to heart. Now back at the model home, maybe comes home to find Lindsay sitting at the kitchen bar and maybe tells her mother that she realizes that her grandmother can be nasty and she's actually glad that Lindsay is her mother and gives her that elephant brooch that she's wanted her entire life. Meanwhile, in the kids' room, George Michael tells Michael that, you know, he kind of knew that the drug deal was being staged by his father and uncle. He knew that it was fake the whole time because one of the hot cops is his choir teacher. <laughs> to say nothing of the construction worker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been a, a big tip-off, I guess. Michael feels sorry for making George Michael feel pressured and stressed out lately, but George Michael tells him that he feels the two of them are okay. And Michael tells him that, you know, you can say anything to me. Anything at all. So you can see kind of like the wheels turning in George Michael's head, and he replies by saying, like, say, I had a crush on my own cousin. Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, you know, kind of stares at him for a moment, silently, and then... He cracks a smile and begins to laugh and says, Hey, you just taught me a lesson. It just kind of playfully rubs George Michael's head and tells him that they're now even and walks out of the room. <laughs> so now George Michael, kind of traumatized by what just took place, silently sits there and stares as a, uh, a faster version of Big Yellow Joint begins to play, kind of a, a punk rock version. And uh, we then cut to white and then our closing credits. Just a, a hilarious episode of the show. And I, I would have to, I would have to pick this one as my favorite. I really have to agree. I mean, all of the episodes have really strong moments to them, but this one, I think, just moment for moment, is, is thick with them. Yeah. Which is, as you mentioned before, it's surprising that for an episode without uh, Tobias in it, because uh, David Cross brings so much to the show. It's just uh, surprising to see a, a, an episode without one or two strongest members of the cast without him in it. Yeah. To, for that to be uh, one of the best episodes. Yeah, and you hate to say that uh, he wasn't missed, but it was just so funny and, and so dense with all kinds of flashbacks and 
cutaways and callbacks that you, you don't really even notice that he's gone. It just uh, really speaks to the strength of that episode and the writing of it. And Job and Buster both come through so strongly in it. Yeah. But they, they, they really fill the space. And you got to imagine how hard it is to write an episode with a huge ensemble cast like that, just trying to fit all of the A and B and C and D stories all in an episode. It was probably kind of a relief to get Tobias out of there just for one of the episodes to kind of, like you said, you know, bring out more of like Job's character and Buster's character. And, and they really knocked it out of the park with this episode. Yeah, just to streamline things a bit, because very often, if, if you if you were to map out the, the plots and subplots, some of it can get so very involved that, in fact, I understand that Fox, through the three seasons, they were constantly pushing for the show to be simplified, because it was so complex and fast-paced yeah. at the same time, that it made it difficult to follow. And in fact, they said that if you listen to, or if you watch an episode without the narration by Ron Howard, the episodes are very difficult to follow. That that really that narration is really necessary to stitch it all together and to make it work. What I think that may be one of the reasons why, uh, even after it got its Emmys and all the uh, the rave reviews from the critics, why it didn't catch on because of the complexity. It's not something that you can really step into in the middle and and, and make sense of. And this came out in you said two thousand three. Yeah, this episode I believe is two thousand. No, 2004, January 2004. Okay, 2004. So it was before um, you had, you know, people DVRing shows, really, before that, that caught on. So you didn't have the chance to go back and, you know, you didn't have the on-demand services and all of that that you do now. Yeah. Not that many years later, but still so much has changed from when these first aired. Like, with me personally, with Arrested Development, when I saw that this series was going to be coming out, and uh, the pilot was going to be airing right after, I think, The Simpsons, because it was a, started as a Sunday night show. I was like, oh, okay, I'll watch it. I'll give it a shot. And immediately, I just fell in love with the show. I, I love this. And so I watched it every week. But I can understand, like, if you're catching it, like, at this peer pressure episode, you know, you're trying to think of, okay, well, who's brother to who? Who's sister to who? Who's the grandmother of who? How are these kids related? I can understand it's just kind of mind-boggling, even with... Ron Howard's narration to kind of propel the story, you're missing so much from the past that without like DVR and like with all that stuff now, it's just so hard to, uh, you know, to catch up. And I think that's probably what eventually did them in ratings wise. I mean, I was fortunate. I, I came to the show years after it had been canceled and I just happened to be clicking channels and it was on and it just happened to be the pilot. Oh, wow. I had no idea when I was watching it that it even was the pilot. So I was, just by sheer luck, I was able to get in on the ground floor years later. Yeah. And so then it did make sense to me as I saw, once, at least once you have the, the pilot episode, then you can kind of follow, even if you see them out of order, out of sequence, you do lose a lot of the callbacks, but at least you can understand the basic structure of who's who and, and the dynamics of the relationships. This is definitely a series that rewards repeated viewings. I mean, I mean that's been said about The Simpsons and Futurama and shows like that, where they can literally draw in little jokes in the background. I mean, this is a real-life version of that. And that's only background stuff, not including the, the callbacks and the, the wordplay and the in-jokes. Uh, it, it got criticized towards the end of, of becoming a show of nothing but inside jokes, but uh, it's jokes that once you learn them, it's just so hilarious. Yes, and as you 
say, you, you pick things up each time you watch it. I've seen this episode probably half a dozen times, and, and it's not even a line that's hidden in the background, the, the line about, you know, why don't you just wait for Lucille <laughs> She'll be gone soon. And I've heard that line half a dozen times that never registered with me until you mentioned it. Yeah. And that's how the show is. Certain things will kind of go past because you're focusing on more of the story. And then a line will just hit you out of nowhere. It's like, how did I miss this? This is so, so funny. And a lot of times that, that makes them that much more humorous. Yes. Because you've missed it and you've got that sudden revelation <laughs> of, of, of what was hidden in plain sight. That's just that sudden revelation. And, and how did I miss that? And even if you're a longtime viewer of the show, as we are, uh, you got to go to that Splitsider article. Just Google uh, Splitsider Arrested Development, and you'll you'll find a link to that article. And just check out that long list that's compiled, and you'll just be amazed. Maybe some that you have realized, but there are some so deep. It's amazing that uh, they have escaped notice so long. But uh, just really, really funny to see all those in-jokes and little details that were hidden in there. And it just shows you how beautifully dense this show was. It's just amazing to think that, you know, they were writing this under constant deadlines. Yeah. They had to just crank them out and, and to be able to come up with that richness and, uh, you know, so much in the way of backstories. And again, tying all these disparate threads together. I would say it's the best comedy produced by American television. Yeah, I would agree with that. Seinfeld oftentimes did try that, you know, having all different plot lines going, subplots that they would resolve at the end, and they did a good job of it. But I think uh, Arrested Development just was at a level all its own. And it's hard to believe that something could surpass some of these great comedies, but it's certainly right up there, even if you don't agree that it's the best. Oh, absolutely. And if you don't agree, well, then you're wrong. But I can live with that. I'm at peace with other people's mistakes. <laughs> I move on. All right, well, that'll pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, jokes we missed, whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at Hitting Play. Now, Steve, do you have anything you want to plug? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I am on uh, Twitter. My name there is at MC and Friends. You can follow me there. I am also on Vine. My name there is also MC and Friends, and there I do little flip page animations, little humorous cartoons. You can follow me there. If you listen to us on iTunes, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It helps us out, and if you do, you will get a shout-out on the show, and we try to be creative with those. For Android users, we are also available to stream and or download on Stitcher, and we can now be found on TuneIn Radio and we're coming soon to Google Play, so look for us on those platforms as well. Well, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, break down this episode with me, and it was uh, very fun. Uh, I had a great time, thanks. Well, we have been Stephen Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. And this is why you don't ask a friend to podcast. <laughs>